Well, if you would, uh, go back to 1 John chapter 2. We are right back there this morning after a week off last week, but on a similar theme. And we're going to consider the next two verses that we come to in our study of this great letter. So 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to consider verses 7 and 8, or at least begin considering verses 7 and 8 this morning. So 1 John 2 Verses 7 and 8. And I'll begin by reading these two verses for us as our text for this morning. John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Now since this year began, 2021, since we began looking at what John is teaching beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2, we've been getting a very heavy dose of what it means to obey God. We've been talking about that a lot. And today we really are still on that main theme But John, in these verses, directs our attention to a complementary topic that helps us in our understanding of what it actually means to obey God. So we're still thinking about obedience to God, but we're going to jump on this parallel track for a little bit that John directs our attention to. We really cannot obey God if we do not have a good understanding of his commandments. And that's what John is directing our attention to. And more than that, I think we'll find that the better we understand what I'm calling the theology of God's commandments, then the more we will be empowered to obey them. So not only are we looking at God's commandments this morning in order to understand them better, but I believe as we understand them better, we will find ourselves more empowered, motivated, fueled to obey them. And so I think that's precisely what John is doing for us here in verses 7 and 8. I believe that these two verses give us three main elements to a proper understanding of what I'm calling the theology of God's commandments. You can't look at verses 7 and 8 and not see that he's talking about commandments. So that's what he's directing our attention to. And I think that there are three elements to God's commandments that help us understand the theology of his commandments. And When I say that, you might think, wait a minute, I thought that theology had to do with things like the Trinity and the atonement and the character of God and the person of Christ and end times and things like that. And you're right to think about those important areas as being elements of theology, but we also need to realize that the realm of Christian theology is far more extensive than just those big picture matters. Orthodox Christian doctrine encompasses a great number of things, and one of them is the nature of God's commandments. We need to realize that there is a right way to think about God's commandments, and there is a wrong way to think about God's commandments. And as a very practical help, we have to see that a proper understanding of God giving commandments, thinking about the giving of his commandments, Thinking about that rightly will equip us with great strength to be able to obey them. 
And so we're going to spend our time today studying what John reveals to us about what we call the doctrine of God's commandments. Or we could say that we're going to consider a theology of God's commandments this morning. And like I said a few moments ago, I believe that in these two verses, John gives us a threefold way to think about the theology of God's commandments. And all three of these ways to think about his commandments all have to do with what God's commandments are connected to. God's commandments, I believe, are connected to these three things. First of all, John is saying that God's commandments are connected to creation. Secondly, John reveals that God's commandments are connected to conversion. And then thirdly, we're going to find that God's commandments are connected to Christ. So God's commandments are connected to creation, to conversion, and thirdly, to Christ, most importantly. So let's begin by seeing how it is that God's commandments are connected to creation. Look at verse 7, the first part of the verse, where John says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. John plainly says that what he is writing to them is not new, but it is something that they had from the beginning. And a few questions we need to ask of the text at this point, things that I would want to ask of John. First, I would want to ask, what exactly is it that John is writing to them? He says, I'm writing to you, and then he calls it no new commandment. But what is it that he's writing to you? And I think what the answer is that, is that John knows that he's writing commandments to them. He says he's writing no new commandment, but that means he knows that he's writing commandments. John is writing God's commandments to God's people. That's what it is that he's writing. And if we were to secondly ask John, well, what kind of commandment is it that you're writing to us? He would say, well, I'm giving to you an old commandment. In other words, there is a commandment that has already been given before. There is a commandment which they should have already known. It is a commandment which would be recognizable and even predictable because it's an old one. Now, usually when we hear someone tell us that they're going to share with us something that is old, we have one of two reactions. You might say, oh, great, something old, just what I wanted. You sigh because you're given something that's worn out, that's already lost its effect. Or... The second option is that you're excited because you're getting something old that's quite the opposite of something that's worn out. Maybe it's something old in that it's something of great value. Maybe it's something old in that it's something of great significance. Or it's something that's old in the sense that it's really reliable. It's proven itself for a long time. And so you want to get that thing that has been proven to be reliable. And so you might be able to guess that this is the second reaction about being happy to get something old is the reaction that we should have when John tells us that he's giving to us an old commandment. This is a commandment that is of great value. This is a commandment that is of great significance. This is a commandment that has proven itself to be greatly reliable above all else. 
And so we know that this commandment that is coming from God's servant, John, we know that it's a reliably old commandment and it's a significantly old commandment, but we want to know just how old it is. Some commentators believe that when John writes in verse 7 that this old commandment is from the beginning, some people say that he's simply referring to a commandment that these Christians would have received at the beginning of their Christian experience. They would say that John is simply saying that the commandment isn't old to them. It's a commandment that they had from the beginning of their walk with Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that view, and there's a sense in which it certainly is true. But I think that there is something of older and greater significance when John says that his commandment is from the beginning. It's not merely that these saints have known this commandment since they came to know Christ. And it's not merely even that this commandment has been in place since the beginning of the church. I think that John is saying that this commandment that he's giving is one that itself has been around since the very beginning. And I think that's pretty clear by his use of the phrase, from the beginning. That clearly connects in our minds another time where we've read, in the beginning. I think that John is indicating that there is something timeless about the commandment that he's writing to us. There's something about this commandment that goes back further than our conversion, further back than the the establishment of the church, even further back than Christ's first coming to earth. When we read the phrase, from the beginning, I think we can pretty, pretty easily think of the first time in Scripture that we come across that language. And it's actually at the very beginning of Scripture itself that we come across it. It's Genesis chapter 1. So please turn with me to Genesis 1 so that we can learn about the, the timelessness of God's commandment in the fact that it indeed is connected to creation. And we're going to read the entire chapter. And I, I hope you find that the things that we, that we dig out of this chapter in connection to God's commandments are helpful for your understanding. I think you'll find them not only interesting, but also practically and spiritually helpful for you. As we read through this chapter, I want you to listen for all the times that God gives commands. Listen for God's commands in Genesis 1. It's not that he says, thou shalt do this, or thou shalt not do that, but rather... He's commanding as he gives the purposes for which he created everything that he made. He's going to say, I've created this. And then he's going to say, let it, and then fill in the blank. And in saying, let it do this, he's essentially commanding it to do what he wants it to do. And then it does it. Listen for what he commands for the expanse in the heavens. Listen for what he commands the earth to do. Listen for what he commands the lights in the heavens to do. Listen for what he commands all the living creatures to do. And then listen for what he commands man and woman to do. So let's read together Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth 
and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And I hope you noticed all that God commanded in that chapter. God did things. He created things that only he could do. But then he commanded that some of these things remain and do his bidding. God did not merely create. He created and commanded. He created things with purpose. He created in order that, he, that his creation might do what he commanded them to do. And that it might be what he commanded it to be. It was not just a creation for the fun of it. It was creation with purpose. To the expanse, God said, let it separate the waters from the waters. So God created waters on the earth and waters above the earth. There's debate as to what exactly that means. But this expanse was to remain and stay put and to separate the two. And it did precisely that, at least until the flood. When we know that that expanse was removed and the waters came down and crashed upon the earth. And then to the earth, the ground, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And the earth has com- continued to follow this command till this day. Plants grow from seeds. They follow God's command to them. And then to the lights of the heavens, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And here's the purpose. Here's the command to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So the lights in the sky are there for us to have light on our earth. They do that very well. And they exist to indicate to us seasons, days, months, Years, they do that very well. So the lights fulfill the duty that God gave to them. And then we see that God said to the animals of the earth that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and then let the birds multiply on the earth. And this is exactly what they've been doing since the very beginning. And then we come to God's commandment to humans from the beginning. This is the command from the beginning. It's what we read in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them. This is God blessing with a command. Here's your command that itself is a blessing to you. And this is it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's command to man is twofold. One, be fruitful and multiply. Make more humans. Two, different from the other things that he created. The second part of the command is to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Rule over the earth is God's command to humans. And it is this second facet of God's commandment to mankind that I think is actually at the heart and soul of all of his commandments that follow it in time. 
In verse 27, we read that God created man and woman in his own image. And then he put them in his special garden so that they might rule over all the rest of creation on his behalf. God did not remain there to rule. He left the one he made in his image to rule. They were to represent the Creator in all that they did as overseers of creation. Or to draw attention to, to glorify the Creator as they did the job that He left them to do. Now, in order to make the picture as clear as I can, I need to bring a little bit of ancient history to bear on this point. In ancient days, when the kings went a-conquering, think Alexander the Great or some other great leader or ruler in ancient days, they would conquer a group of people and then they would move on to the next group and conquer that group and then move on to the next group. They go from people to people to people to people. They didn't have the technology that we have nowadays. So before he left, he would leave behind to rule over that conquered people a person. A person designated as what we know as the vice regent. This would be a military leader who would govern the newly conquered people in the place of the king. Since the king had to move on and conquer the next group, he would leave behind a vice regent. And the vice regent would have the authority of the king, even though he himself wasn't actually the king. And the vice regent would seek to implement all of the king's will over that realm that had just been conquered. And when the people looked upon the vice regent... It was as if they were looking at the king because he was installed in the image of the king. He wasn't the king, but he was the representative of the king. So that when people saw this vice regent, it was as if they were looking at the king. And so it is that mankind was made to be God's vice regent over the earth. God created the earth. God called it good. God gave all things their purposes. And then God made mankind in his image and gave us the duty of ruling over the earth as his vice regents. And we must be very careful to realize that the most important part of being left behind as this vice regent is that all the subjects in the kingdom are to be put in order as the king requires. It's not left up to the vice regent to do the job that they think they should do. It's up to the vice regent to put into place everything that the king wants to be done in the realm. The subjects are supposed to see the authority that is wielded by the vice regent so that they know it's actually the authority of the king. The realm is supposed to be filled with the glory and splendor, not of the vice regents, but rather of the king whom they represent. Essentially, it is supposed to be abundantly clear to everyone that the vice regents do, that, the, that all that the vice regents do is so that the king's will will be carried out in every way. They're consumed with doing what the king would have them do. So how does that principle from Genesis 1, that we are to have authority and dominion over the earth, how does that relate to what John is talking about here in 1 John 2 and verse 7? 
Well, I think that by connecting the commandments that he's writing, that John's writing, by connecting his commandment to the first commandment that God ever gave to humans, we learn that all of God's commandments that he's ever given really are the outflowing of his original command to his creation. Or to put it another way, the singular and the timeless command to glorify the creator by ruling over creation is the fountain out of which all other commands flow. If you were to put a bucket down a well and then bring up a new command from God to pour it out, then the water source that you drew it from is this timeless command in Genesis 1.28. Or if you were to drink One of God's commands in Scripture, as it were, as if you were taking a drink from a cool mountain spring, then you would be drinking from the spring known as Genesis 1.28. I think that every command given by God to to mankind in the few thousand years since creation has been but a way for us to obey this first, most fundamental command. Think about it. To love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. That's an important command that he's given. To do that is to perfectly rule in his place over all creation. Because what would we want to do if indeed we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Oh Lord, whatever your will is, that's what I want to do as I accomplish my duty here on earth. I love you and so I want to obey you, of course. To love your neighbor as yourself is to perfectly share this divine responsibility of ruling over creation with all the rest of humanity. You want to honor our creator as a vice regent as I do? Okay, I love you. We relate together well because we see ourselves as but servants of our creator. To have no other gods before us. To not take his name in vain. To not steal or lie or covet. To avoid all possible sins. To follow all of those commands is to make much of the creator by having dominion over all he has made. By righteously ruling over creation. I believe that C.S. Lewis helps us understand this idea in one of the books that he wrote several decades ago. Most of us are familiar with the Narnia series of C.S. Lewis's writings, but fewer are familiar with my personal favorite, his Space Trilogy, that he wrote three books. And the second book in that series is called Paralandra. Any of you read Paralandra? Okay, good. You're going to have to go read it. I introduced you to something that you will like. His Space Trilogy. Go look it up. But in that book, Paralandra, it's an allegory about... God's creation before Adam and Eve sinned. It's very interesting. And in the story, the the figure in the allegory who represents Eve, she has a conversation with the, the one who figures, who represents the serpent. And he's tempting her to try to get her to sin. And she makes a simple but profound comment that demonstrates her supreme desire to obey the commands of her creator, of her king. She simply says, I am his beast, and all his biddings are joys. I am his beast, and all his biddings are joys. Essentially saying, why would I want to disobey? He made me. 
And so everything he bids me do is my delight. And if we view ourselves as God's beasts, the best of all the beasts, the beasts given the authority to rule over the rest of them, if we view ourselves that way as God's creatures who have been given a duty to glorify the creator by ruling over his creation in the way that he wishes for it to be ruled, then we will indeed see that all his biddings are joys. Because we were made with the express purpose of obeying our maker. We were made for the purpose of ruling in his stead. To do in every realm on creation whatever it is that God would do. We were made to be like God in ruling over his creation. And so the first aspect of this theology of God's commandments is that his commandments are connected to creation. And I think it's really helpful for us to make that connection in our minds. All of his commands, whether we see it in Genesis 2 or at the end of Revelation, all of his commands are birthed out of the commandment that was bound to man at his creation. We are to exercise perfect dominion in conformity to God's will. And every other command that God has given in time flows out of that glorious duty. I think that's what John hints at when he says that his commandments to his readers are actually old. They are as old as the one that came from the beginning. Because John is not commanding anything that would violate the timeless command that came at creation. Anything that John is going to command, and we're going to see anything that Christ even commands, is but an outflowing of the original command that God gave at creation. So God's commandments, first of all, are connected to creation. I hope that's helpful. Secondly, we learn from 1 John 2 and verse 7 that God's commandments not only are connected to creation, but they are also connected to conversion. John says at the end of verse 7 that the old commandment is the word that you have heard. Or to put it in a math equation, I think I put it in the, in the notes this way, God's commandments equal sign the word that you have heard. They're one and the same thing. God's commandments equal, they are the word that you have heard. Now, there are plenty of words that Christians have heard. We've heard good words of preachers. We've had good words, heard good words of friends. We've heard the good words of hymns that we sing. We've heard the words of devotionals and books that we read. But those aren't the words that John is referring to. John is specifically referring to the word, to the written word of Scripture, the word for word in verse 7 is the Greek word logos. You've probably heard that word before. It's the word that's used to reference Jesus himself in John chapter 1, in the first chapter of his gospel. Jesus is the logos, the, the living word from God. And it's the word that is sometimes used to refer to the gospel message specifically. Like in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul refers to the word of the cross so, logos of the cross, specifically the message of the gospel. 
But often the word is formally used to refer to Scripture. And I think it's clearly being used to reference Scripture here in verse 7. So John is saying that God's commandment is Scripture. But, this is an important thing to observe, you'll notice that I did not articulate this second point as God's commandments are connected to Scripture. I didn't say, point one, God's commandments are connected to creation. Point number two, God's commandments are connected to Scripture. I didn't do that for two reasons, not only because it would break the alliteration, but more importantly, because that's not actually what John is referring to. I worded it that way because the connection that John is making is to conversion and not to Scripture, because we have to finish the rest of the sentence. John did not stop at the old commandment is the word. He said, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. And that last part that you have heard is so important. There is a sense in which it is true to say that God's commandments are in Scripture. Or even that God's commandments are all of Scripture. But what is not addressed in saying it that way is the fact that God's commandments are horrendously disobeyed all the time. If you think about it, if we were only to think of God's commandments as being connected to Scripture apart from conversion, then we would have to be satisfied with a doctrine of God's commandments that leaves them disobeyed most of the time. If we were just to look at God's commandments as just what's in Scripture, then most of the time in life, His commandments are disobeyed. If we failed to connect God's commandments to conversion as well as to scriptures, then we would have a hard time explaining why there are so many commands in scripture that so many people fail to obey so often. Or to put it very bluntly, if we did not view God's commandments as being necessarily connected to conversion, then they would be pretty lame commandments because most people in the world don't keep them. Imagine if most of the time the lights did not shine for us to see. Imagine if most of the time the lights did not show us the days and the months and the years. Imagine if most of the time the earth did not bring forth crops. That would be pretty catastrophic. But what what do we see to be true about God's command for humans to rule over creation as he would rule over creation? Most of the time, it's not done well. So what happens when God commands something to happen? Is he merely making a suggestion when he commands it? Is he simply explaining the better of two options when he commands it? Oh, I think this is better than that, so I hope you do this one. Is he commanding something that might not be followed? May we never think of his commands in that way. Because when God gives a command, it will accomplish whatever it is that he wants it to accomplish. When God says, do this or do that, then it is always done to the extent that he wants it done. Whatever in his mind done means, done will happen. In his time. 
And this might be really hard for us to wrap our minds around, but we need to try to do it because God never gives a command in vain, ever. Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. These are verses that you all know. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall exceed in the thing for which I sent it. That means... That anything that God sends out as a command will not return back with the message not accomplished. That will never happen. God commanded, let there be light, and there was light. God commanded, let there be seas and fish and birds, and there were. God commanded, let the animals bring forth after their own kinds, And the animals to this day still bring forth after their kind. By the way, this is one of the most spectacular biblical arguments you can make against evolution. Because God commanded, you must bring forth after your kind. And it's always happened. We haven't changed kinds. And the same is true for every other command that he gives. Now, you may have in your minds the natural question that arises at this point. What about sin? Because sin is what happens when we don't follow God's commands. And this is the right question to ask here. Because we see that God commanded in creation that humans would rule perfectly over the earth. And we know that we have not done so. We have all sinned in not fulfilling that command. Does this mean that his command at creation is to be left undone? Does this mean that he gave a command that has not been followed? And does it mean that all the other commands which were to follow are also to be left unkept? And these, the answer to these questions is, of course, no. And it's no for two reasons. First of all, this is the harder one for us maybe, when an unrepentant sinner who will one day enter God's eternal hell When that person fails to keep God's commandments, we see that they are actually using God's commandments for the very thing that he purposed to use them for. And this is hard for us to understand, but we must affirm it to be true that God purposes for his commandments to store up condemnation for those who will not ever obey them. That's the purpose for him giving commands. God gives commands to those whom he will one day judge so that he has something to justly judge them for. That's the purpose. And scripture actually makes this very clear. Paul says that this is true of all sinners in Romans 2 and verse 5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Because you won't obey God, you're using his commandments for the purpose that he designed them for for you, to store up wrath against yourself. And it's also true of people groups in time as well. In Genesis 15 and verse 16, during the days of Abraham, we read that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites at the time of Abraham was not yet complete. And that means 
that God was using the continual rejection of his commandments by the inhabitants of Canaan in the days of Abraham to store up wrath against them so that it would be just for Joshua and the Israelites to come in a few generations later and destroy them all. God was using the rejection of his commandments in the days of Abraham and all the generations after that to store up just consequence for the inhabitants of Canaan so that when Joshua came, it would be the right thing for them to annihilate the people. In Daniel 8.23, in Matthew 23.32, and in 1 Thessalonians 2.16, we read about how a people's sins are measured and how they are filled up to a point so that God is just to bring upon them even earthly judgment. So God's commandments accomplish their purpose even when they are rejected by those whom he will one day judge. That's hard for us to get our minds around, but it is true that God intends for his commandments to not be followed so that he might justly punish those who will not believe. But then to our point, we see that God's commandments accomplish this purpose in a special way for those who hear them. These are the ones who have ears to hear, as Jesus said multiple times. These are those of whom Jesus said in Matthew 13, 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. These are those who are the good soil in the parable of the soils. Jesus said, But those that were sown on the good soil are, those, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. That's Mark 4, verse 20. Do you remember the opening that Moses gave to Israel in Deuteronomy 6 when he was going to give them the great command to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Deuteronomy 6, 4, the command at the very beginning of the verse is, Hear! Oh, Israel, we often skip over that word here, but that was the first and most important thing that they were to do. Hear the command so that you could do it. Then John recorded these clear teachings of Jesus in his gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's John 5, 24 and 25. Then in John 8, 47, Jesus says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And then we read of the ministry of the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And we find that the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And this brings us back to where we are in 1 John 2 and verse 7. Because John says that we are the ones who have heard this old commandment. You see why that's such an important phrase. We have to understand that this kind of hearing is much more than merely having the the sound of Scripture tickle our ears. It's more than reading the pages of Scripture and having the words sounded out in our minds such that we know what they say. This kind of hearing has to do with receiving 
and with believing every single word that comes from the mouth of God. To truly hear is to eagerly accept Scripture as the truth of God. To truly hear is to have one's eternal hope fully fixed upon the Word of God. To truly hear is to believe with confidence that the Bible alone contains God's commandments that you long to follow. That's what it means to hear. And this kind of hearing is only possible because of conversion. And this is where we get the point. We can't hear God's commandments in this way and so fulfill them in this way unless we are converted Conversion is what we call the moment in which a person goes from darkness to light. Conversion is the moment at which a person repents of sin and turns in faith to Christ. Conversion is the natural result of the Holy Spirit giving spiritual life to one who was just a moment ago dead in transgressions and sins. The third verse of Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, goes like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Now that's a picture of our spiritual state before the Holy Spirit brings us to life. Dead in sin, imprisoned, bound in sin and in darkness. But then Wesley goes on. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. And that's a picture of the Spirit's work of regeneration. We suddenly can see because a life-giving ray of light pierced the darkness in our hearts. And we realize that our chains to sin have been removed from our arms and our hearts are now free to serve whomever we wish. So, whom will a person always choose to serve after that kind of illumination grips their hearts and frees them? Well, Wesley continues with the answer. He says, I rose, went forth, And followed thee. And that is conversion. When a person truly hears God's commandment. After this kind of work has been done in their heart. Then the only possible result is that they rise up. And go forth and follow in obedience to God's commands. In other words. Conversion results in fulfillment of God's commandments. When we hear the old commandments, as John puts it, then we are fulfilling God's purpose for those commandments. When we hear with a heart to follow his word, then we are demonstrating that his work of conversion has powerfully formed in us a heart that longs to fulfill his command. We long to rule over the earth as God designed us to rule over the earth. And we're the only ones who can do that because we're converted. Instead of storing up God's wrath against us in rejecting, we now are those who store up his favor because we follow, because he's converted us. So God's commandments are connected to creation. And God's commandments, secondly, are connected to conversion. 
And this, of course, brings us to the third connection in our study of the theology of God's commandments. Thirdly, God's commandments are connected to Christ. And hopefully, as you can tell, we do not have time to cover that point today. But I want to give you just a little preview as we close. We read of that connection in verse 8 of 1 John 2, where John writes, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And what this verse implies is that both of the first two connections to God's commandments are able to remain only because of the fact of the third connection. In other words, without connection to Christ, God's commandments completely fail. We're going to see next week that God's commandments with respect to creation are nothing without Christ. And also that God's commandments with respect to conversion are also nothing without Christ as well. So next week we'll pick up here as we finish out our study in the theology of God's commandments. And it'll be a great time because we're going to focus on how Christ becomes the foundation for the fulfillment of all of God's commandments. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving to us in your word something that our hearts long to follow in your commandments. And we ask that you would help us to follow them. We cannot do it alone. We long to be what you made us to be, and we long to do what you made us to do. We can only do that because you have made us anew now by the power of the Spirit. And as we're going to understand next time, the foundational power and energy that allows us to obey and allows for your commandment to rule over the earth to be fulfilled. The foundational power is Christ and Christ alone. So we look forward to learning more of him next time and ask that this week as we live as your people, we will be those who conform to your commandments because we are those who are connected to Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.